Carl Laderut is a PhD candidate in uh, Department of Philosophy at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. We are in Ottawa today, and you're here because of the ACTC Core Texts Conference that's taking place here this weekend. Yes. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks for having me. You were presenting a paper on Nietzsche to convince the world that his work, The Gay Science, uh, should be considered, uh, along with some of his other works, as part of the Western canon. Perhaps we could start by looking at why Nietzsche is important to start with, why we should read him. Primarily, I would say Nietzsche is important because of his influence on the 20th century. So I'm thinking of philosophers, cultural theorists. In many ways, he's the, the grandfather of postmodernism. Postmodernism is a very broad concept. What's your definition of it? I don't like to define it so much as use it as a contrast to modernism. I identify modernism with essentially the Enlightenment movement coming out of sort of medieval scholasticism and not dogmatic adherence to religious texts, but a, a real focus on religious texts and interpretations. The Enlightenment starts to cast that off and is willing to say, okay, let's just look at these problems differently. Let's just think about it on our own. We don't have to rely on any particular text, be it Aristotle or the Bible. We're going to think about it on our own. And there's a real faith in the power of human reason to be able to solve problems and reform society, that we would be on a path of perpetual progress so long as we were all rational and were seriously engaged in this, what we could almost call it the scientific enterprise of clear thinking and trying to figure problems out. But as that progresses and you get into the 19th century, there start to be setbacks on that project. So in philosophy, you have Kant and then the swing of German idealists. There's Romanticism that pops up, which is a real sort of reaction to this focus on reason and a, a type of denial of other parts of human life, our passions, the way we feel. Something that's greater than ourselves. That right. Our soul, our yeah. essence. Um, and with Kant and then German idealism, uh, you start getting a philosophical story that reinforces, perhaps, faith, um, and that human reason is, is really great, but it definitely has its limits that we can't get outside of. So perhaps the world will always escape us in a way, and even if there's no rational proof for God, you could still have faith in that. Reason is a, this is Pascal, I think, that's going a ways back, but saying mm -hmm. that reason is a, is a cul-de-sac. Right, yeah, so the same sort of idea becomes a bit more thematic going into the 19th century, at least in German circles. But then, if we want to just identify postmodernism more generally, going into the 20th century, what do we get? The First World War, which shatters this myth of continual progress. And then, 20 years later, we get the Second World War and the Holocaust. So here we are, 400 years after the advent of the Enlightenment, with all of our scientific knowledge and advancements, and we're butchering each other in ways that couldn't have even thought of back then. We're barbaric. Yeah. So it really starts disconnecting this notion of rational progress with, maybe we'll call it social progress, an increase in morality. Or civilization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so postmodernism 
is a distancing from this modern optimism that comes from the Enlightenment and carries through, this idea that reason can really reform civilization and make us better. So postmodernism, if we wanted to attach certain labels to it, there's probably a type of skepticism attached to it, uh, certainly a skepticism about the power of truth and knowledge to reform civilization in, in good ways and give us progress. Yeah, to change human nature. Yes, and what you also get with postmodernism is a, a reaction against meta-narratives. So the whole idea that we could really make the whole world hang together in some way. To make it understandable. Right, yeah. And this again ties into that entire rational theme of the Enlightenment, right? That reason's really powerful, we can sort the world out, science can give us a lot of very good answers, that will, and it will all hang together in a nice sort of way. So, and, we, and we can control the world. Yes, that yeah. too. So postmodernism, it's a reaction to the modernism that comes out of the Enlightenment, and it's a rejection of this faith in reason and the power of reason. You could say it's anarchical or chaotic. At least in a sense. You might buy into the story that reason isn't powerful enough to reform civilization in all of these progressive ways that were promised. But even if you accept that part of the story, you might not just become an anarchist, right? You could still accept the fact that we can't reform mm -hmm. in those sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. So maybe something like liberal democracy is really the best way to go, given that we know we can't achieve very structured, rational progress. Just think of some of the discourses of liberal democracy. Reason can't decide between, say, religious faith and atheism, or exactly how we should structure the world. So what we should do is be tolerant of all these different views, uh, and just accept them and try to live together without conflict. For instance, in the Reformation, there's this big move on behalf of the different religious, I'll just call them sects, that they were definitely right, whether it be by faith, revelation, or even reason. In a lot of cases, there were rational defenses were attempted, at different systems of religious faith, and they were thought to be so convincing and absolutely true that whoever disagrees with it is either just rejecting truth or they are so far gone they can't see it, and therefore were justified in killing them or forcing them to convert. And so you can see modern liberal democracy as a second way, really. It's so a way of trying to accommodate both. Right, yeah. So mm -hmm. we're, we're going to try to be Peacefully. tolerant because... Right. We know that that whole project of legislating by reason runs into serious troubles and conflicts. And we're better off just stepping out of that box and, okay. and trying to accommodate everyone. So coming back to Nietzsche, I peg Nietzsche as the grandfather or maybe godfather of at least philosophical postmodernism uh, because he inspires many of the 20th century's what we would label postmodern thinkers, even if they might not like it. People like Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Jacques Derrida, lots of French thinkers particularly. But he also influences German philosophy. Martin Heidegger spent quite a bit of time on Nietzsche. And he also has a pretty big following in Anglo-American circles as well. So what was the influence? Certainly in the, the post-World War II French circles, it's skeptical of the power of reason, or at least very cautious about it. Nietzsche's primary epistemological view or set of views that we might want to hang together uh, is what we typically call his perspectivism. And he, he gave it this label, but it's not, he never sat down and 
sort of produced a whole work that said, here's my views on truth and knowledge, and it's called perspectivism, and this is exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead we have this smattering of aphorisms and different pieces of writing that if you pull together um, seem to certainly point towards at least one general view, and then the details are where some arguments might really come up. But the general view is that you can't achieve the sort of, I suppose I'll call it absolute truth, that the Enlightenment Modernist Project was promising. Uh, what you're instead going to get is a type of almost radical scientific truth. So, I mean, scientific in the fact that you have to experiment and approach problems from different angles uh, and then see what your results are like and rethink it. Perspectivism essentially holds that you always approach the world from some perspective. So you're interested in certain things but not in others. Who you are, in a sense, is going to inform this perspective, what you're interested in, and then what in the world you run into. And then you're going to have this collection of maybe data or views that you're going to evaluate and think about in certain ways. But then you can approach it differently. So whether it's the same, maybe the same part of the world and we have the same interests at play but different people, they'll inform their perspective differently. Or the same person looking at the same thing but with different interests. So maybe right now I'm interested in physics, later chemistry, biology, literature, philosophy. All of these different ways of approaching parts of the world, issues, and problems. And they don't all necessarily hang together in a coherent way, like the Enlightenment Modernist right. Project would at least hope for, right? That's the hope. It's all going to hang together and make sense. And Nietzsche really casts doubts there. Skepticism. It might not be skepticism, because if you're going to be really skeptical... You're not going to believe in anything. Right. You're right. going to say, so we're going to have all these different points of view, and there's no way to mediate them or evaluate them or sort of check them for greater or lesser truth or something like that. And Nietzsche doesn't seem to bite the skeptical bullet, because he does talk about truth, and he sort of leans on truth, and he does say in a few places that we should stop thinking about true-false as a dichotomy, yeah. but more and less true. So yeah. there's a spectrum, right? So maybe you have part of the information, but there's always going to be more. So you might have a better and better informed view or perspective. But don't think of a, of a limit point that just says true, you know, capital T, this is really the way it is, and that's the final word. So this still doesn't eliminate conflict, obviously, because no. it's not maybe quite as dramatic, true and false, but if there's different versions of true, mm -hmm. just like there are different versions of God, you're still going to have the carnage. Right. Th th that sounds right. Some of Nietzsche's inheritors, so I'm thinking especially these French postmodernist people like Derrida, take the view and then seem to work in the skepticism as well. It's not necessarily explicit, but if you look at what they're doing, they seem to have a kind of skepticism underlying. Well, if we can't have truth the old way, we might as well just give up on the truth project. Maybe it wasn't a good project to do. Maybe it's not a useful idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should just look at interpretation and experiments and this sort of thing. And just forget about the truth part. But I don't, like I said, I don't think that's where Nietzsche goes. And so what we get is this sort of conflict. You don't just get, well, this is true and that's false. Here's right, there's wrong. But there's going to be competing interpretations. And one way I like to make this concrete is with political interpretations different political ways of looking at the world. So if you think about any hot-button issue, 
climate change or tax rates. You get different interpretations. So, of course, the different, we'll, we'll just sort of separate it into political parties and we'll say that constitutes a perspective. Even though if you want to get nitty gritty, the political party is made up of many individuals, each of which have their own take on the world. Uh, and even within that, within one individual, that doesn't necessarily mean they have one perspective, right? At different times, they know different things, they're formed by different interests, so it can be, it, it gets very shattered. But if we just simplify it and say, okay, let's take sort of major political parties and say they have one perspective on something, first, they're going to look at data and argue about what sources of data are accurate and inaccurate. You know, what are the facts of the matter in the sense of what's relatively objective that science gives us that we can reproduce you know, in laboratories and many people can get the same sorts of results from the same sorts of experiments. Despite the fact that, that Nietzsche says there are no facts, only interpretations. Right. And so when I'm saying facts, I'm using that in the sense of really stable interpretations. Something that everyone can agree upon as opposed to uh, like what political parties will do is call into question mm -hmm. the other's, quote, facts. Right. And see, that's, that's where facts get really tricky. So what exactly is a fact? Well, typically we want to say a fact is some sort of objective feature of the world that we have immediate access to that's just undeniable. Just observable facts, obviously. Yeah. There's the credible research. Mm -hmm. Those would be the main... Right, and then, sources of but but how do you constitute those things? What's credible research? What's an objectively done poll? That's the what pharmaceutical companies do. They'll do a whole bunch of research. Mm -hmm. They'll only publicize the research that supports what they want it to support. Right. Does so, Nietzsche get into this? Well, he certainly doesn't talk about the pharmaceutical companies. No. This debate about facts. So. Right? Depending on your interests and sort of what allegiances you have, you might point to certain results or, or interpretations of the world and say, but that's the facts. You can't deny this one, even though that's exactly what other people will do. So it becomes this really embroiled conflict. If we want to talk about objectivity, perhaps the best way to do that would be to, to limit it really narrowly to something like the results of scientific instruments in easily repeatable situations. Well, like time, for example, you're not going to, that's a fact that it took place at a certain time, right? Probably. Once it's gone, though, you have to reconstruct all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, again, this might sound really skeptical, uh, but let's say we're writing a history of Nietzsche's life, uh, and we have some letters or something like that that say, you know, at four o'clock on this day he met so-and-so. Or, you know, we have a letter saying, let's meet today at four in the restaurant. So we have this physical object. You know, we can compare this to what the scientists get out of the machines, right? Okay, so we did something with this piece of technology, and now it did this. The lights went off, or, you know, read 7.2 or whatever. So we have this thing in front of us out in the world. But then what do you do with that? That's where interpretation comes in. Right. And so, what's his point then? What's Nietzsche saying? He's saying that, that you're always actively involved in determining what the so-called facts are. Right. But so, okay, you're always involved in that to what end? In determining what that means. So the, that what? You can make a case for what you want to happen? Yeah. You can think of it just as knowledge more generally. So you gave it a bit of a, a self-interested bent, which very well might be the case. 
But if you want to know anything about the world, you need to go out and experience it in some sort of way and then construct interpretations about what all of that means, how it hangs together, right? And, and like I was saying before, he's not skeptical. This isn't mm-hmm. saying, you know, there's no facts, so anything goes. Do no. whatever you want. You he's know? just saying take into account the fact that there are a whole range of possibilities. Right. A whole range of possible interpretations, some of which you may not even be able to, to comprehend. Right. There's so many ways of putting the issues together and framing it and what interests you're taking into account and how that's playing off other interests and, and bits of information that you're using that you have to be really aware of that we're really actively involved in that whole process. That sounds wonderful. That sounds enlightened. That sounds intelligent and everything that we want to happen. So how come the Nazis got a hold of him? Traditionally, a lot of blame has been placed on his sister, who was effectively a proto-Nazi, German nationalist, proto-fascist type figure. After Nietzsche goes insane in 1889... His sister basically inherits his literary estate and proceeds to put out certain editions of his books. And a lot of blame is placed right at her feet for really sort of wooing the Nazis and, and presenting Nietzsche's works in a very favorable light. But how? How? If he, you've, what we've just discussed mm-hmm. is something that's, that's enlightened and, and, and objective and laudable. Mm. So how do you get from that to turning him into a Nazi? Well, the easiest way is to take some of Nietzsche's writings, so some of his aphorisms or or little quotes here and there, Mm -hmm. uh, and then take them out of context. Um, And if you do that, you can find all sorts of little snippets where he sounds like he's, you know, very pro-German in a way that the Nazis would have liked, or anti-Jewish, or uh, anti-other aspects of Europe and you know some of what he says if you just rip it out of context and don't try to do anything with it you can quickly give it a Nazi type spin so for instance in the genealogy of morals he contrasts masters and slaves and these masters should have their own morality and you can't judge them by the slave morality well just think of what you could do if you were a Nazi right we're going to go out and reshape the world and make it a better place Um, But you can't judge what we're doing by those slavish values of other nations or other groups or something like that. That's just reactivity, and they're not strong enough to be like us. So don't worry about that. Uh, He says things about the Aryans or the blonde beasts Mm -hmm. out roaming and being active conquerors and this sort of thing. The irony, of course, is that they're doing exactly what he's warning against. Yeah, so if you're a critical reader of Nietzsche and really take some time, He also slams the Germans and slams nationalism and says very favorable things about the Jewish community. So in one spot, he might say something that if you just ripped it out and took it as a sentence or two, might sound like he was anti-Semitic. Somewhere else, he's pro-Semitic. You know, and he'll say things like, the Jews are actually much better than the Germans in terms of intelligence or culture or something like this. Even keeping their bloodline pure or something like that. So there are some tones of that 19th century eugenicism and sort of social genetic project in Nietzsche. Um, but again, and, he's basically just giving a variety of different interpretations to the facts. Right. And the, the Nazis and his sister are guilty of exactly what... Now, does he warn against this kind of activity? 
he does have um, some worries that in the, the coming century there's going to be these sort of great wars of great different ideas and that with the death of God, so the demise of traditional morality and values, a whole new world of interpretations will open up and some of them will be really stupid, uh, right? We could throw Nazis and the totalitarian Soviet Union in there, right? Mm -hmm. These are godless interpretations of the world instead of holding up sort of traditional values, whether they be enlightenment, sort of truth, progress through reason, or religious ideas of, you know, stick to traditional values and, and be faithful and that sort of thing. You get these new interpretations of the world, new ways of saying this will be good and that is going to be bad or evil. Uh, and we're going to go in these sorts of directions. And they just don't pan out or they're not well thought out. Um, for instance, anybody who's seriously studied Nazism will see that intellectually it's pretty barren. It doesn't hang together all that well. And mm -hmm. the, the people that were really engineering the Nazi project, you know, Hitler and that sort of top group, they weren't intellectuals. They didn't spend a lot mm -hmm. of time on trying to make the views coherent or anything. They were just out doing their thing, right? And then you get the sort of intellectual group that comes along and says, oh, and we can support what you're doing in all these different ways and somehow tie it into some appeals to authority. Uh, that's part of what happens with, with Nietzsche, right? Some intellectuals come along and say, oh, you know, what you're doing sounds kind of like what Nietzsche said, at least here and there. Um, and so for at least in one instance, there was a little pamphlet made for German soldiers uh, with little Nietzsche quotes. Again, ripped totally out of context. There's no explanation. Uh, I don't even think there's citations for them. So you couldn't track them down easily. Uh, there's this little pamphlet given to German soldiers that was basically what we're doing is great. Look, even Nietzsche says so, and he was a great German philosopher. Great thinker, yeah. Right. So what happens then is Nietzsche comes to the conclusion then that there is no God and that he was never more than a, a semantic fiction and uh, that God is now an, is empty of meaning and if nothing is true, then all things are permitted, which again sounds a lot like anarchy and if all things are permitted sounds a little bit like what happened in Boston at the marathon recently. Mm -hmm. There's a, a couple of ways to sort of flesh out what you've said. So what you've said certainly strikes a chord in Nietzsche. So I'm not just going to try to dance around and say, oh, no, no, this, this sort of very enlightened, rational, in a sense, figure that's you know sort of objective, you know, that's it. That was what Walter Kaufman did in the 50s and 60s to sort of rehabilitate Nietzsche amongst Anglo-American intellectuals, right? He, he highlighted this sort of enlightenment bent in Nietzsche that seemed pro-knowledge and safe and nice, right? To really get rid of the Nazi emphasis on the aspects where it was, you know, danger's fine and it's okay if you go out and violate old morals and this sort of thing. Thinking of the God issue a little more, yeah, Nietzsche picks up on... You've sort of a, an intellectual strand that's going on at the time, analyzing the belief in God, we'll call it sociologically. So it's not a matter of taking the arguments or the faith and saying, you know, what well, should we really believe in it? Uh, instead, it's a step back and looking, we'll, we'll say it scientifically, at people that do believe and saying, you know, well, what do they believe exactly? Um, how did they come to it? Not in the sense of, is it justified? But, you know, just why are they believing these things? It's a descriptive sort of project. Nietzsche engages in something like this for a 
long period in his work. So from human alt to human, so 1878 up until his collapse, which basically 1888, um, first few days of 1889 he collapses. So about a 10-year period. He's he always has this sort of concern and interest in analyzing religious belief. You know, why are people believing in this? And what does it mean to believe in it? And sorry, just to jump in there, what oh, yeah. I said was, was not, not accurate when I think about it for a second okay. here. If there is no God, then anything is permitted. Getting into, quote, root causes, mm-hmm. there was a resentment, supposedly, that may have been connected to a religion that, in part, explains the killing of innocent civilians. Mm-hmm. Right. One way of, of talking about the, the God idea in general, and then the relation to morality, because you're picking up on something very important there, is, so Nietzsche takes this sort of empirical, scientific analysis of belief in God, and then presents us with this picture. You know, what did belief in God really represent? So we are going to take it sort of semantically, we're not going to so much take seriously, you know, well, should we believe or not? Is that a, mm-hmm. you know... Should we engage with an argument there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But he wants to look, it's like, why do people believe? And then he puts together, you know, a list of reasons for that sort of belief, uh, and then concludes that it's it's for a whole bunch of different reasons. It's not that anybody really had any epistemologically good grounds, but it made them feel good, it was, you know, socially acceptable, and this sort of thing. And he does temper himself, so it's often seen that Nietzsche's, you know, this table banging, you know, no, go atheism, that's it, that's the way to go. But that's really not it. He's, again, more nuanced here, and he's, he's nuanced in a lot of places where he sees sort of the, the good and the bad in, in what he's analyzing. So in terms of religion uh, and belief in God, he's cautioning us against the sort of universalism and forcing everybody to go this one way. But at the same time, he sees issues with atheism, total faith in truth, science. And actually, there might be a space in there for new types of religion in Nietzsche's quasi-ideal future. I put ideal uh, in sort of scare quotes there, because to have one single ideal is to reject the sort of perspectivism and interpretation we've been talking about. So thinking about... But he did say God is dead. Right. So the, the belief in that old God is this objective category that's the same for all. It's dead in the sense that it's unbelievable, he thinks. Well, we just have to see that God isn't dead. It's, there's just a whole variety of different gods that are competing with each other. Right. Once you take that sort of step, what you get is, again, this rejection of a kind of universalism, swinging over to the, the Boston events here. Let's just not say it's religious for the moment. But in terms of what Nietzsche is saying with the death of God, so believing in God would be believing that there's just one way to look at the world. It's this kind of objectivity and almost enlightenment modernist project in a different guise, right? They're both ways of saying that there's one story of how to get the world right, and if you don't, you're just getting it wrong. And if you're getting it wrong, we can just ignore you or write you off or... Kill you. Know, yeah, and be totally happy about that and just think that we're perfectly right and we should be comfortable with it. Uh, And I think a really great way to maybe highlight what Nietzsche might be up to is I've heard that lately Justin Trudeau has promoted looking into root causes here. Um, And he's been attacked 
on that point by the conservatives. The conservative response, from what I hear, has been something like, you know, don't look at the root causes. Um, it's not worth dealing with these people. Just get rid of them. You know, stop what they're doing. Stop them by force of arms, and that's the end. And see, there's an example of the absolutist idea. We know how the world should be. These people are just getting it wrong. You know, you just, if you attack innocents like that, you're not worth taking seriously because you're just obviously disconnected from the right way of things, period. And I think what Trudeau is pointing towards, and I'm not saying he's endorsing this kind of radical relativism and so he's a godless atheist and we should all be appalled, but I think he's fruitfully pointing to the sort of multi-perspectival approach we need to take to these issues. So look, we have terrorists blowing people up, and we don't like that. But they do. Why do they like that? Well, I don't What's, know if they like it. Well, maybe, okay, maybe they it'll, don't like it. Why are they it'll doing send, it, it'll, Perhaps they think it'll send them to okay. heaven or... Or, or if further a political cause. Or, or you have to speak to revenge somehow. Yeah, or, so, okay, fair point. So maybe they don't like it, but they think it's valuable in some way. And, and that's valid. why they're doing it. And valid. Right, yeah. yeah. It's okay to do it in some sense. And if you want to stop what's going on, you don't just dogmatically take your fist down and say, you know, well, it's wrong, and so anybody that does it is automatically disqualified from, from intellectual discourse at all. Uh, what you do is you look at them and you ask that sort of sociological question again that Nietzsche's doing with religion. He doesn't just bang the table and say, religious people are wrong, the end. Don't believe it. You have to look at it and say, but why do they believe what they believe? Why are these people committing these acts of terrorism? If we want to stop it, is the real end to stop it? If that's what we want, shouldn't we be willing to do whatever that takes? What if, so this might sound like a defense of terrorism, and it's not meant to be. I'm fairly committed to the idea that you know blowing up innocent people intentionally is really a bad thing to do. Uh, and despite Nietzschean a sort of moral relativism, I buy right into that. I'm against that. If that is have, an absolute. For me. But if you look at the world... And Nietzsche's eyes, and I think this is right, the world doesn't have values. Humans do. Those values only exist because we buy into them. So you and I buy into blowing up innocent people is a bad thing to do. Most people, you know, in sort of first world Western countries do. I think probably most people everywhere do. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. And to just disqualify them and say, well, they're just getting it wrong, the end. It's not going to be fruitful. You're just going to lock yourself into that conflict then. You know, we're right, they're wrong, so we should fight each other, and that's going to be the end of it. Well, Instead, the, other thing, the other thing, too, sorry, is that, yeah. the, that that exact scenario plays itself out the other way around. Islam, Muslims may see what the United States did to Iraq as murdering a bunch of innocent people. Mm -hmm. To your, yeah, to your yeah. point there. It's, so it's, having a bit of charitableness and being willing to say, why do these people believe what they do, whoever your you know, enemy is, and then be able to say, well, look, if they believe what they do because of some other issue that we could potentially resolve, mm -hmm. why not do that if, so this is very hypothetical, let's just say that most people who wind up committing acts of terrorism are badly off in the sense that they don't have good economic prospects, Mm -hmm. They're in a culture of oppression because they all feel oppressed. And if, they might have had injustices committed yeah, kind of against them. Right, yeah. So if that's all the case, Nietzsche is pro-experimentation. So if it's the case that you don't want you know, your people blown up by terrorists, 
look at the groups where the terrorists come from and, and look at all these conditions and say, well, hey, maybe if they're poorly off and don't, you know, they feel like they've been, um, injustices have already been committed to them, so this is defense, this is retaliation, they don't have good alternative prospects. If you change that, will terrorism stop? Nigel, give it a try. Do, do you have any interest in going and blowing up people? Do, do you? Not at all, no. No, neither do I. And I think we could probably give a great story for that. We both have pretty decent lives. We feel like we have a range of valuable choices. I don't feel particularly oppressed. Uh, you know, maybe a little ignored or, you know, a little annoyed sometimes by the political system. But, you know, I don't feel like I'm the target of systematic oppression. I have real options. I don't feel like there's people out to get me. You know, of course, we have sort of terrorism as this predominant thing in the 21st century. But, you know, every time I go to the mall, I'm not worried. People in other parts of the world are. Or I'm you not know, filled with rage or feelings of resentment. Yeah, or, you know, uh, if I'm in Syria or maybe Iraq or something, things blowing up around me mm -hmm. can be a daily part of life. And not and having I, a future. Yeah, and I have no options here, right? That just happens. Mm -hmm. I have no say in the matter. Well, if these are the cases, all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense why people would think terrorism and that sort of value system makes sense. So going back to Nietzsche, in terms of you know, the loss of objectivity, he's in a way making a historical descriptive point. If you look at history, you'd never get sort of one objective moral code that everybody's buying into and agreeing on. You might get broad agreement some of the times, but just, just look at history. Look at medieval history. Mm -hmm. You have all of these Christian kingdoms fighting each other, trying to set themselves up to increase their power and all this sort of thing. World War II. So if terrorism is the intentional targeting of innocents to achieve particular ends, United States drops two atomic bombs on Japanese cities and full Eng of civilians. England flattens Dresden. Yeah, right? Germany bombs London. Yeah. So is that all terrorism? Maybe yes. Maybe no. Maybe it's not. Maybe because a war is going on, it's different. But if you give that definition, well, modern terrorists might say there is a war going on. Mm -hmm. Nobody's declared war, though. But... Look at the political and economic makeup of the world, right? There's a lot of wealth over there. There isn't any over here. There's troops here. Things are blowing up around me. I'm feeling oppressed. I feel like injustice has been done. That sounds like a war. What's the, the difference between that and, say, uh, how Polish or French or a whole lot of other people would feel in World War II? The problem is, though, defining it as a war plays into the arms of of arms dealers and mm -hmm. military-industrial complex. They want a war. They want their country to buy into it. Right. Get behind it. Yeah. Let's just let's sort of wind down then with, if I read you correctly, you're saying that, that reading Nietzsche and his pers perspective is one that could, if people adopt it, inevitably lead to peace, world peace. You know, I think to do that, we might have to ignore bits of Nietzsche. And that might be just fine. I think one of the real benefits to reading Nietzsche seriously and taking some real time to critically reflect and, and think about him is realizing that he seems to admit that there's always going to be some perpetual conflict. And in a way, I think that there's maybe some value to that. That might be true, right? We've always been fighting. Mm -hmm. uh, so to think that we're not, what's your reason for thinking that? Uh, if it's just optimism... Uh, well, we've had that for a long time. You know, the Enlightenment project was shot through with optimism, and then it wound up with World War One and Two and the Holocaust yeah. and terrorism and you know on and on and on. 
And he can't so, change human nature, I guess, is what he's saying. He might not say that, because that means you have some timeless essence of exactly what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. But he might say something like, we've always been fighting each other, so barring big changes, we probably will keep fighting each other. And this is where I want to sneak in. So you said, if we read Nietzsche, maybe we'll wind up with world peace if we start taking his advice. I think maybe we could get there. So earlier, uh, I think I was saying something about you can, in a way, make Nietzsche compatible with liberal democratic practices. I think you do that by taking the good parts, so there's open-mindedness, looking at other perspectives, trying to find middle grounds, and applying that. And, okay, but dismissing the bad parts, which are... His seeming conviction that war is going to continue, we're always going to be fighting, democracy is a form of weakness that's just sort of untenable, it's some sort of leveling that's not as valuable as an aristocratic ordering elite. of society. Yeah. yeah, yeah. he has this idea that you really need some sort of aristocratic elite to get anything valuable done. Mm -hmm. And aiming at mere contentment or happiness for people is a despicable goal that's a lowering of the bar. He says all these things. And, you know, he maybe tries to justify them. But it's not very convincing to me. I like contentment. And... I like our safety mm -hmm. and having open choices and being able to pursue my own goals and uh, not being at least an explicit slave of anybody. That seems really good to me. You know, and if Nietzsche teaches us anything, it's to think for yourself and try to come up with your own ideas and pull it all together. So I think we should selectively take the good from Nietzsche, this openness to other perspectives, thinking about issues in different ways to try to find resolutions that we want. Uh, without unfounded optimism or a dogmatic commitment to any one particular sort of view, we shouldn't just ignore the rest of what he says, but take it critically. Don't well, assume... read Nietzsche as he's suggesting we read the world or fact. Right. With your own active interpretations out front and recognizing that that's what you're doing. You mm. don't just take facts. You're not passively reflecting an objective order of the world that says this is good and that is evil here's how it should be if you don't get it you're just in error or you're evil or morally wrong or whatever it is so we can dismiss you and just not worry about you anymore but recognize the active role we all play in the way we approach the world and if there's people that have a different way of doing that take it seriously think about it don't just assume you're right and dismiss them all out of hand but you have to really take it seriously and admit that Maybe something you're doing is wrong as well. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the ultimate aims you're trying to get to, um, the values you have, or just even your methods. Maybe you, on reflection, think your values are good, but your methods could be better. So coming back to terrorism, what does our ultimate value seem to be? Living in peace and security. Uh, critical reflection? I like that aim. I don't think I'm going to give that up anytime soon. Uh, but what about our methods? Well, if our methods are a heavy-handed approach that keeps people feeling oppressed without choices, which makes being a terrorist a viable option for them, that seems like a bad method. Like we said earlier, we don't want to be terrorists because we don't have all of these conditions that would make that seem like an appealing option. We would take a lot, a lot of changes in my life to make me even think that was a, a valuable option. But some people do. So there's well, something there making them think it's, it's and, something good. So we need to think about that really seriously. And one would hope that by changing the situation that they live in, improving it, that might be a better route to take. Right. Yeah. And then you still get to your ultimate aim of keeping what you have. 
and yeah. being safe and peaceful and all that. He wrote a fair amount. What's the easiest read to get the most benefit oh, from? Oh, goodness. <laughs> or is there, is there one? I've, I've recently recommended to a friend who's wanting to get into Nietzsche uh, The Genealogy of Morals, which is, it consists of three essays that relate to each other. It's on, as it sounds, the genealogy of morality. So where do our morals come from? It gives a bit of a critical perspective on our moral practices. I think that's a really good place to go if you want to see what Nietzsche's views on values are. If you want a rather short summary of his mature views, Twilight of the Idols is a very good book, but he's often very terse, and he'll just say things that you might look at and say, well, I, I don't quite get it, or I don't understand why you're saying it, but it sounds interesting. So Twilight is a good short summary of his mature views. The genealogy is a bit longer, more in-depth, uh, maybe make a little more immediate sense, uh, piece on his values. Uh, Zarathustra is a great piece of literature if you want a bit of a story with some a bit of thought-provoking nature, but it can be pretty mysterious. I like the gay science in terms of the most number of spurs that he gives us to think about topics and encourage us to explore our own views on what's going on and, and seriously think about our own interpretations of the world and how we put it together. Good list, and if you like yeah. it, then keep going, right? Yeah. If I have to pick one favorite book, I'll, I'll just say Gay Science. Well, appreciate your interpretation of Nietzsche for us. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Carl Latterud, who is a PhD candidate at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Thanks again. Thank you.